0: Hello. Hi. Today we're going to be continuing our series in James and we're going to and today is all going to be about looking in the right place. Have you ever been looking for something and you can't find it? And that's not just because you're having a what's sometimes known as a man look, it's because it's not actually where you're looking for it. So we're going to be considering together this morning, are we looking in the right place? Uh, I'm gonna read James 4, verses one to 10 to you now, and then we'll have a look at them, those verses together. So what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet what you cannot get, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Uh, which, funnily enough, was just before the start of chapter four, we were looking at living our lives based on the right kind of wisdom. God's wisdom makes us peace lovers, producing a harvest of righteousness. And if we ignore the added chapter demarcation for now, uh, we can see James flowing from writing about how God's wisdom leads to good fruit and a harvest of righteousness into challenging this fighting and quarrelling that must have been going on uh, amongst those to whom he is writing, the early scattered Jews. Uh, so as he continues his approach of intrinsically linking their faith and their actions and of calling them to calling out the mistakes they're making, pointing them to the real answers, both in terms of belief and behaviour, and we're gonna to continue to look in that flow as well. So in verses one to three, James starts confronting these behaviors, this fighting and the quarreling. And he starts to trace it back to say, why are they fighting and quarreling? And we find that he gets to their unmet desires. They desire and they covet. What it doesn't explicitly say is what all these desires are and whether they're good ones and godly ones or whether they're evil desires. Back in chapter one, Ben talked to us about this battle that is going on in each of us, rooted in the desires, each person being tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. There is a battle going on in each of us between these godly and non-godly desires. If we go back to Exodus Uh, The word covet reminds us of the 10th commandment, doesn't it? You shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbour. We all know what it's like to want something that someone else has got and that we haven't got. But is James suggesting that their desires are wrong? Let's just look for a moment at that uh, case study gold uh, that is Joseph and his brothers. So in Genesis 37... read a bit to you. Uh, In verse three, it says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. And and if we just skip forward to verse 20, they take it to the next step with with a new plan. um, And they say, Here comes that dreamer. Come now, let's kill him and throw him in one of those cisterns. Envy and jealousy, they're at the start of that. And it leads to hostile action. It leads to verbal and and potentially physical damage towards Joseph. Now, thankfully, due to Reuben's intervention, that outcome is averted. But we see the connection James is making between the desire that then moves on to quarrelling and can end up with killing. But let's look at what Joseph's brothers were actually desiring. What did they really want? They wanted to know that their father really loved them. I guess amongst all of us listening, there'll be a Undoubtedly, a large range of experience of relationships with fathers, a mixture of of good and bad in there. But we can all identify with that desire to know that we are loved by a good father. Joseph's brothers don't seem to be confident in this knowledge of a loving father, although I'm sure uh, he would have expressed love towards all of his sons. Uh, It doesn't say that he didn't. And we can see that they've got this genuine, unmet desire there, but we can see that they look to solve it with their own ideas. They come up with their own plan that involves killing Joseph. Back to James, he directs the scattered Jews here back onto the right path with the simplest of advice, really. Ask God. So we can deduce that at least some of the readers' desires were good and they were unmet. And we have James's addendum there to instruct them to pray from the right motive. So I guess that covers ruling out those desires that aren't from God. You don't need to pray about them. So what would would Joseph's brother's actions have looked like if they'd taken the option to say, Lord, we're not convinced our Father loves us. What, what would you advise us to do about that? Um, and we can ask ourselves that question, can't we? Uh, am I looking in the wrong place for my unmet desires? Am I forgetting to ask God? Maybe there's something you're finding difficult in life at the moment. Maybe school is tough. and There's some times where you just don't want to get up and go in. Uh, maybe... At uh, work, your, your manager's just not treating you right. Maybe your housing situation needs to change. These aren't bad desires, so we can bring them to God. This is my, uh, my wedding ring. We're going to move on and look at what James goes on to next, which is the theme of marital imagery. He's looking at the same theme, but but now using marital imagery. Let me read it again, this bit to you. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Wow, talk about ramping it up a notch. This isn't a statement that can be ignored, is it? It's brutal, it's a a massive wake-up call to those that would have heard it originally. He's calling them cheats, adulteresses, those who look elsewhere rather than to their husband. There's no kind of watering it down or making this more palatable. Um, I don't know. Do you ever ask God to speak to you from His Word and find yourself drawn to this passage? Um, let's examine it a little bit together. It's common in Scripture, from Old Testament prophets through to John in Revelation, for God to, Himself to be portrayed as the husband in a covenant relationship with His bride, Israel, His people, the church. And we know that friendship with the world means aligning ourselves with the world's values rather than with God's word. Let's just take a look at 1 John 2, and verse 15, where John says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does, the will of God lives forever. Recently, two of our members, Joe and Molly, began their marriage. You may be able to see the beautiful Ivy aisle behind me that they walked down. They entered a covenant relationship by exchanging vows before God. Now a husband and a wife. Not just because they feel in love at the moment, because they've committed to an exclusive relationship for better, for worse. They swap rings as well as a sign. This is modeled on God's idea of an exclusive relationship with us. One where he says, I'm all in. I'm never leaving. How about you? We could even go back to the book of Hosea and see what a committed love from God to his people looks like. He continues to pursue them there even though they're unfaithful to him. His love for us is such that he'll never abandon us. So if James chapter one, verse 22, Uh, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself, do what it says. If that verse sums up the whole book of James, then these verses that we're looking at today are perhaps right in the center of the book. And if not, certainly a huge crescendo, because here he goes straight to the heart of life. He makes it pretty black and white, doesn't he? He says, if we're not looking solely to him, then we're adulteresses, boom wake up we really shouldn't be surprised that James uses such blunt language to describe the times where the recipients of the letter are not looking to God for what they need you adulterous people it's because of his great love for us he loves us so much of course he's not prepared to share us as we grasp the height and depth and width and truth of his love. Reason dictates that we stop looking elsewhere. He's asking them why they are continuing to look to worldly wisdom when they have access to the wisdom of God. They're looking in the wrong place. God is the answer. He is saying that he is the one who loves you. He's proven it, so come to him. Stop looking elsewhere. You don't need anything extramarital all the love you need can be found in this relationship with your loving heavenly father we've seen from james and john there that they're both warning that the things of the in the world that we're inclined to look to for our well-being are dissatisfying distracting often destructive and ultimately disappointing the new covenant that god offers us is this redeemed relationship with the Father. One that is sealed, not with a ring, but with the blood of his son, Jesus. And it is enough. It is complete. It costs you nothing, and it costs you everything. You enter it like a marriage, all in. No prenuptial agreement, no small print, no terms and conditions from our side. No limits, no no no-go areas. No sense of trying to retain some control or attempting to exert some authority in our relationship with him. No. He makes a covenant of love with us. And when we receive that covenant, we have found what we're looking for. But this did present them with a challenge, those that were first listening to this. How could they keep this standard of wifely perfection. Kindly and compassionately, the Father confirms clearly how he'll equip them for this impossible task in verses five and verses six. It's like God saying, you can't keep it, but I can do it in you, my son, my daughter. I can do it in you. So firstly, he says, here's my power. My Holy Spirit, he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. When Peter is explaining to the crowd what's just happened at Pentecost, he quotes Joel, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And Peter also said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And as Jesus says in Luke 11, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And secondly, he says, here's grace. More than enough. The Bible is packed with the message of grace. Absolutely full of it. Just one place to quickly look is Romans, in chapter five. Verse 17. For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That abundant provision of grace. Clearly they, uh, and also we, (laughs) are in need of continuous grace to overcome our sinfulness. So it's important to hear again that he gives us more grace. So they knew where to look and they knew the help that they needed. So now James encourages them into action with some promises and some outcomes. So. Eyes on the goal. First, here are the promises in verses 7 to 10. The devil will flee. God will come close. Your sins will be forgiven. You'll become single-minded for the things of God. And you will be lifted up. I'm here for that. Who else is? (laughs) So within these same verses, there are seven opportunities for faith-filled action humble themselves, submit to God, resist the devil, come near to God, confess their sins, stop being adulteresses to God, stop looking elsewhere. Don't treat it as a laughing matter. Take it seriously. And once again, humble themselves. They're all necessary. They're all full of promise. And if we're going to partner our deeds with our faith, then we we'll want to do all of these and we will enjoy the fruit of those promises. Such great promises. That just to focus on one of these, mainly because it's in there twice, right? The beginning and end, sandwiched uh, there. So verse six, which is quoting Proverbs three, verse 34, which says, the Lord opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then in verse 10, it says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. I wonder how many of the readers of this original letter humbled themselves. Looking back in Deuteronomy, we can see the Lord humbled the Israelites, causing them to hunger and then feeding them manna in the wilderness. But James seems to suggest to his readers here that they've got an opportunity to choose to humble themselves. They don't need to wait for God to do it. Go back to Joseph's brothers, they certainly got their moments of humility in Egypt, bowing down to Joseph. But in that, they also receive full grace and restoration. They each go on to become the leader of a tribe of Israel. So as surely as they were humbled, they were lifted up. Have you ever been out on a journey or a walk or trying to get to an office or a shop or someone's house and you've taken the wrong turn and experienced that urge to keep going forward, hoping that the road or the path will eventually get back to where you need to be? Or you think you can see where you've gone wrong and you want to take a shortcut across some heather and a bog and a river and hope that you can get back on track? Do you ever think, I wish I'd just turned around, gone back to where I went wrong? and started again on the right path. Humility means admitting that we need help. that We're not the answer to our own problems. It allows us to lay down our solutions, our own plans, how we think life should work, what we think's fair. It confronts our pride, and it allows us to receive the Holy Spirit's power. And with the Spirit dwelling in us, And it means expecting to be lifted up, that he will sustain us during the trials, enable us to persevere through suffering, that he'll come close, that he will provide. And humility means a missing, we've been looking in the wrong place for our unmet desires. Where we've been looking to the world, not asking God, it allows us to return to him, check that our desires are his and look only to him. It means returning to the place where we stopped doing that and setting off again, looking to him. It means expecting that God will answer our rightly motivated prayers according to his will. So we can ask him for provision, for shelter, for warmth, for food, for work, for direction in life, for physical and mental well-being. Humility means expecting God to lift us up, to provide, to strengthen, to help us persevere. The list goes on. So I'm finishing with this call for us to be humble, to humble ourselves. We're gonna sing together, and then I'll lead us in a response. Um, So as we sing, let's be all in, let's trust his love, and let's continue with faith and action.